Defence Dialogue, a podcast discussing contemporary challenges in the area of European security and defence. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Nicholas Novaki. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wolfie Martin Centre for European Studies Defence Dialogue podcast series. My name is Dr. Nicholas Novaki. I'm your host, as always, and with me again today is... And my dear colleague and good friend, uh, Mr. Julian Bonici from the communications team. Uh, thanks again, Julian, for coming. It's great to have you here. <laughs> thanks for having me once uh, again. It's, it's, it's great to have you and to continue the, uh, this podcast series from where we left last time. Because last time we were discussing the decision to provide tanks to Ukraine. And, and um, when we were thinking about like what to focus this episode on, the idea, of course, came to our mind very quickly that on the 24th of February, we will be marking the uh, one-year anniversary of the, of the war in Ukraine. So even though we spoke about Ukraine quite a lot already uh, in the previous episode, it only made sense to focus and dedicate this episode uh, to, to the war in Ukraine as well. As all of you, of course, like know, uh, on the 24th of February 2022, very early in the morning uh, that day, like Russia launched uh, an unprovoked attack uh, on Ukraine. I personally remember it very well. I was in Finland at the time at, at my mother's place. And uh, very early in the morning, as it was everywhere in the news. And I, I, th I think that many people in Europe have these sort of same memories of uh, where they were uh, at the time, like when the war began, it's a little bit like the um, like the moment when September 11, 2001, like happened. A lot of people always seem to remember as well, like where they were when that took place. And um, the, the eruption of the war or, or Russia's unprovoked attack, it really it followed months of saber rattling, months of like Russian threats to Ukraine, and uh, a thinly disguised, uh, a thinly veiled uh, military buildup along the uh, Russo-Ukrainian border. Like I remember, like Russia was building up its forces already in um, in the spring of 2021. Uh, there was a brief scare that the war might might have started already then, uh, but there was a diplomacy. Diplomacy did its work at the time, and there was a summit between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. At, at that time, like we managed to avoid the war, but Russia did the same thing again uh, at the end of the year, and then uh, in in uh, early 2022 launched uh, the war. And this was, of course, it was a very big shock to many people first and foremost in Ukraine itself, but also here in, uh, in, in, in the European Union, because we haven't really been used to seeing conventional war on, on, on the European continent, like since the end of the uh, end of uh, Second World War. So it's been quite a long time um, for many people. And I do have to say that this is a bittersweet anniversary in many times, in, in many ways, because on the one hand, I think we're all quite happy that Ukraine has been able to withstand uh, so far, that Ukraine has been able to fight back against the Russian invasion. We've seen them fare better than I think many people expected at the beginning of the war. But at the same time, um, we have to be clear that uh, this has been a year of war, a year of e enormous uh, humanitarian and eco economic disaster like brought upon the Ukrainians uh, by Russia. Uh, thousands, tens of tens of thousands of people have have perished. Many uh, have become internally displaced, lost their homes and livelihoods. So, I, I I'm conflicted about 
like this anniversary many times in, in many ways because it feels like something to mark upon but at the same time it doesn't feel like something that you should necessarily celebrate i don't know like how you feel about it julian so yeah no i think i'd have to agree with it right i think the marker is sort of how long already this sort of conflict has been going on right this invasion uh this war it's been a long year um particularly for for Ukrainians, you know, as you said, you know, so many lives lost, um, infrastructure completely lost, you know, c- cities completely, you know, destroyed. So it's been uh, so tough, you know, for them. But I would say, you know, obviously marking a year, you know, something I was always maybe skeptical of um, at the beginning, you know, maybe it's my me- background in the media, but I always worried that they'd sort of be a big flash in the pan moment when the invasion happened. And as time um went on, people would slowly either become desensitized to it or sort of forget it. But I feel like a lot of people are still really resilient and resolute uh, in the support for Ukraine. But I don't know about you. I am maybe sensing a bit of worry from the Ukrainian side about fatigue in Europe. I was watching Zelensky's addresses, you know, um, in the UK and France and in, in the European Parliament, and it just felt... You know, he was really making this rallying cry to sort of continue supporting Ukraine, um, particularly when it came to sort of air, air capabilities. I don't know how you feel about that. You know, what, what, whether you see any signs of fatigue slowly coming in and whether, you know, maybe sort of Zelensky is sort of pushing this narrative ahead of a Russian offensive, you know, coming in a few months. Well, I think it's, it's, it's a perennial danger that whenever a conflict goes on as long as like this one has has gone and that it becomes normalized in a way that it becomes like something that people expect to just read uh, when they're skimming through like the newspapers and, and the headlines that you you even before you open like the newspaper or, the, or whatever news app that you're using that you're you're expecting to see another headline like from the war from the war in ukraine and that kind of desensitizes like you to to some extent like to the to the human suffering and, and and to the scale of this conflict it it becomes part of the everyday life in a way and it doesn't become like something extraordinary anymore and i think there is a danger for every conflict that goes on as, as long as this has but fortunately we have we haven't kind of seen fatigue perhaps to the same extent as it has happened in some previous ex- uh, previous cases uh, like the civil war in syria for example I think fatigue uh, in in Europe increased like quite quite significantly, quite quickly, and much more much quicker than uh, it has uh, set in uh, in the Ukraine war case. Perhaps it's because many European countries have uh, living memory of of uh, fighting Russia in the form of the Soviet Union during the second uh, Second World War. So there is living memory of like what it what what it is to be in that position. There's a lot of solidarity uh, towards the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian people, and and uh, many people feel like uh, Ukraine is also fighting the good fight uh, for for Europe kind of more broadly, like to to, to defend perhaps Europe security and defense, and not just kind of its own uh, security and defense. And what has been very positive is that. Uh, despite the uh, long duration of the war, the 
solidarity and assistance that Ukraine has been gotten from its Western and, and European backers has been going up and up gradually. Um, last time when we spoke, um, we spoke about the um, decision of European countries to provide a main battle tanks to Ukraine, which is a big decision, could have a really significant impact on the battlefield, especially if this expected Russian uh, offensive like happens like in the coming uh, weeks and months. It could really help Ukraine fight back against that offensive and perhaps even re deoccupy like some of the territory that Russia still holds in Ukraine. But what I, what I want to say is that we've seen that like step by step, the assistance that Ukraine has been getting kind of from its Western and European backers has been going uh, up and up. And now we're in a position in which we're semi-seriously already discussing the provision of fighter planes to Ukraine. And that might be the next kind of big step. In, in that sense, it's very good to see that there isn't kind of fatigue, at least at the political level yet. There is significant interest. And also when, when Zelensky was in Brussels and in, and in London and in Paris last week, it was great to see that he's still treated as a, this kind of political celebrity that many politicians and decision makers are, are rushing to get pictures and selfies with as well. And, and that, I think that highlights and helps to keep uh, the war high on the agenda as well. I don't know like, I mean, how you saw that. Yeah, no, I mean, he still remains, you know, an immensely sort of popular figure, right? You know, and actually I think has a very good command in a sense when he does address these, these international fora, right? Not in particular obviously to convince politicians, but also to keep the, the public right engaged with the issue and engaged uh with the needs you know um of of of, of the country um, itself something a little bit interesting i've sort of noticed maybe is from the russian side right so i think when russia first uh, started uh, the war was sort of banking on sort of this quick fire invasion take take the country by force in a matter of weeks Whereas now it's shifted to more the sort of war of uh, attrition, you know, kind of um, outlook, you know. And I wonder sort of what Russia's thinking is behind this, you know, like, um, does it suspect that the longer this draws on, the more in favor it is for, for themselves? You know, there are almost 200,000 um, troops still to, to reach um, reach the front lines, you know. I wonder, you know, whether, you know, the longer this draws on, you know, what's going to happen with Europe? You know, obviously there has been, as you said, uh, I mean, and as we've discussed, a lot of support so far, but is it enough? You know, and, and will it be enough come maybe 2024, you know? Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's the, um, the million or billion dollar question in, in, in many ways. And the good thing has also been that we've seen the EU as an organization like also like step up in many ways. Many individual European countries like have provided like direct military assistance in the form of tanks uh, and anti-tank missiles, air defense uh, systems, uh, you name it to Ukraine to like help them uh, continue to uh, fight back against the Russian invasion and to help Ukraine defend its sovereignty. But you also have to emphasize that the European Union as an organization has stepped up in quite a significant and crucial way that has also played a really important role. And I think this is even more remarkable when we consider that the EU's own security and defense policy has only really been existing like since the late 1990s. And when it was launched, it focused mainly on low-intensity crisis management in places that were already more or less stabilized by, by NATO. Since then, like this cooperation has expanded a lot to joint defense capability development, military logistics, uh, you name it. And today the EU even has its own mutual aid and assistance clause that is 
in the form of Article 42.7 of the Treaty on European Union, which is somewhat similar to NATO's Article 5. Of course, not quite as credible because it's not backed by the military might of the United States, but nevertheless. But there have been kind of major issues, major shortcomings, slow action, uh, insufficient capabilities, and aspirations have been higher than, than what Europe has actually been able to deliver like for many, many years. We've heard like during the current EU leadership, for example, High Representative Borrell speaking uh, many times about the need for the EU to learn the language of power. Uh, commission President von der Leyen also like stressed that this would be a geopolitical European Commission. And like before the war in Ukraine, like all of these sounded more like rhetorical statements, mainly like a rhetorical devices to get support to EU defense cooperation from the European citizens. And but the, I didn't really think that there was necessarily like that much like substance like behind them. But like now things have changed like quite a lot also on the EU level. I mean, and and the most clear demonstration of this is the use of the European Peace Facility, the very ironically named European Peace Facility in Ukraine. Um, since the war began, the EU has approved seven assistance packages through the European Peace Facility to, to Ukraine, collectively worth, how much is it? I think it's 3.6 billion, yes, 3.6 billion in total. And this assistance is meant to facilitate Ukraine's acquisition of uh, lethal capabilities and also other type of equipment that it needs to defend itself. And this is importantly first time in the EU's history that the EU has provided like direct lethal assistance to a country like fighting a war. And it's a huge like departure from the EU's kind of previous semi-pacifist, semi-civilian power strategic culture. And, and it's absolutely incredible that like we've seen this happen in such a short period of time as well. And, and in addition to this, something very important to note is the very bold, courageous decision to provide EU candidate status uh, to Ukraine and Moldova at the time when they, when, when, when they are facing this like Russian onslaught, which sends a very positive, very strong message of uh, that Ukraine's future lies uh, with the rest of Europe in the European Union. And I think it's a very important symbol also to the Ukrainian citizens as they are kind of fighting, fighting a war. And, and uh, it's been good to see the European Union step up uh, in, in, in this way. And we just have to hope that, I mean, like this current effort and this current desire to to act and and, and to to support ukraine in its uh, effort to defend its sovereignty will continue yeah and do you think it should continue i mean beyond once the conflict is over right you know it's almost a bit like you know how how the european union reacted to covid 19 right there weren't really strong structures mm. in place to effectively deal with a crisis like this should there be once hopefully the, the war is over, a really concerted effort by the European Union to make sure, you know, we're all protected no matter the thing. I mean, obviously, even from, from your perspective, from, from Finland, right, you know, border countries, you know, mm. people who really need protection, you know, do you, do you envision this happening or do you maybe see a slow burn after it? Yeah, I think the European Union will have an important role to play, like in any kind of post-war settlement, like whatever that might eventually eventually look like and it, it'll be a monumental task to rebuild and reconstruct um, Ukraine and 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 um, also to um, desensitize um, uh, or not desensitize but to kind of bring people back uh, to normal society reintegrate them into normal working life deal with the enormous mental trauma that the war has caused uh, there will be a massive mental health crisis, I would imagine, like in Ukraine after the war. And these are all issues in which the European Union like, has 
things that it can offer. But I think what it, what what is absolutely crucial is that I think Russia needs to bear uh, bear a big responsibility like for what has happened. And any just post-war settlement, I think it should require Russia to help in the reconstruction and rebuilding of Ukraine. And at some point, there will probably have to be a discussion about like reparations. Like, I mean, if the war, uh, provided that the war, and we of course hope that ends like on terms that will be acceptable to Ukraine, like as a country. But this, of course, at the moment, I, I believe the Kremlin is trying to do everything it can on the battlefield to avoid this sort of uh, this this sort of situation. But yes, I think Europe collectively, uh, the United States, of course, as well, like will have a big role to play in the reconstruction and the Ukrainians themselves, but this will be an absolutely like monumental task. Yeah, and just maybe you can maybe give a bit more insight into this. Obviously, I come from sort of an island nation a little bit far away, sort of from from the con- con- um, conflict, you know, whereas, you know, Finland, these sort of countries are really close to it. You know, what's the perspective within those countries, particularly with elections coming up? Is this a really big sort of topic at the moment? In Finland, perhaps not quite as big as one might expect. Um, and that has partly to do with the fact that big security and defense political decisions are usually taken across party political spectrum. And there's usually a fairly big national unity on, on, on major decisions, like the decision to apply for NATO membership, membership uh, which will, once the NATO membership of Finland and Sweden is, is approved, will cause a massive uh, strategic change in Finland's like foreign and security policy. But traditionally, uh, for a long time, um, we have to remember that like Finland was in a very precarious, uh, very dangerous uh, position geopolitically, um, especially after World War II. I mean, we, we lost uh, territory to the Russians in, in the two wars uh, that Finland uh, fought against the Soviet Union uh, during World War II. And then from 1945 until the end of the Cold War, it was a very difficult balancing act, trying to balance like Finland's European and Western aspirations with the necessity of hard necessity of, of uh, following a security and defense policy that would not uh, upset uh, the Soviets. And of course, we have to remember that Finland um, also had, um, it was the Finnish-Soviet Friendship and Cooperation Agreement that was signed after World War II. And that included uh, provisions and clauses also on military assistance and military support. So, for example, there were clauses that said that if the Soviet Union would fear that Finland's territory could be used to stage an attack uh, against the Soviet Union itself, then the Soviet Union could deploy uh, military forces in Finland's territory to fight back against uh, that effort. So, the entire kind of foreign security policy of Finland during the Cold War was based on avoiding that sort of situation in which Soviet troops might be brought into into, into Finnish territory. It was extremely difficult, very complicated during the Cold War. But then like once um, the Soviet Union collapsed, Finland took the decision to apply for EU membership. NATO membership decision took a little bit more time because the security policy narrative of Finland that... uh, the independence of the country was maintained during the Cold War because of the smart policy of neutrality was not quite uh, as falsely, um, quite decisively falsified as uh, old security and defense policy narratives of many other European countries who were freed from the Warsaw Pact at the end of the uh, at, at the early 1990s. So it took people to like change their opinions a little bit, and I think 
what it is difficult to say like what what Ukraine should or could learn like from the Finnish case because there are similarities like geo- geographically but, but at the, at the same time like we are seeing uh, the west um the european union and like nato assist ukraine to a much more significant extent that i mean that was possible to assist finland during the cold war as, as well so the uh, so the context is a little bit different as well in that sense um and when it comes to sort of nato you know expansion and and stuff like that do you do you see even post ukraine further conflicts arising further tension you know it, it it's quite a, a touchy subject you mean uh, with uh, with russia or? yeah with russia in particular it's impossible to say really because it, it also like depends on like i mean what the lessons will be that uh, the kremlin will learn like from the war and hopefully Well, in, in the best case scenario, the, one of the le- main lessons would be that um, the Kremlin should not would not be underestimating the the resolve of neighboring countries to de- to defend themselves in a crisis, and also the resolve of uh, um, Europe and the United States and, and and other Western countries to support uh, the efforts of those countries who are fighting to defend their their sovereignty. But there are, of course. Uh, situations in which conf- conflict might arise uh, in the future in, in the Indo-Pacific is one area where tensions between different countries and, and China are increasing. So it could be that we might be looking, or we all already are looking in many ways more and more to the Indo-Pacific, and we, we probably have to pay more and more attention to tensions and, and conflicts that might erupt uh, in that region in the future. But um, I do hope uh, that we will avoid Uh, future conflicts uh, with uh, with 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 Moscow, and I think that would be in the interest of like both Russia and, and, and Europe and the neighboring countries themselves. And it's it's funny because I mean, if I think one of the things that like if if if, if you were to sit in the Kremlin and um, look at how things are going today and on the Ukrainian front, I think you would probably be thinking that whatever objectives you might might have had to the war, like and Uh, on, on the 24th of February 2022, when they began, you probably ha- had a, expected something completely different because at the moment you've achieved the uh, the national unification of Ukraine. You've uh, pushed the European Union to, to act extremely decisively t- uh, on the energy front and also on the military front to support Ukraine. You've pr- uh, pushed the, U- the United States to get involved in the conflict to an un- unprecedented way as well. Yeah, I mean, you've also pushed Finland and Sweden to apply for NATO membership. I mean, so whatever you might have hoped to achieve, I mean, I think the reverse has probably happened. But yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's, these are interesting and un- uncertain times. But um, I think that's probably all we have for today. It's an interesting, interesting conversation, and again, I think it's it's uh, it's a bittersweet anniversary. This one year anniversary of the Ukraine war, but I I think rather than celebrating it, I think it's it's the important thing is to use this um, this, this 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 moment to continue to remind people everywhere that the war is still going on, and and continue to fight against uh, this this uh, Ukraine fatigue that you also mentioned, Julian. Uh, and I think this this kind of anniversary serves a very important uh, role in in that sense as well. So thanks again for being here. It was good to have this conversation with you, and I hope uh, you who joined and listened in um, enjoyed the conversation. And 
I hope uh, wherever you are, you will have a, a good day. And uh, please do join us again uh, for the next episode. Thank you very much. That was today's episode of Defence Dialogue. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.